thank the Lord for his mercies. Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 to 11. And it's headed, The Church to Its Leaders. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Just uh, want to also welcome John back with us, John Van Hoogstraten, who uh, has been recovering from a recent stroke. It's so good to see you, and our prayers are with you and your whole family. What a blessing to see you here. Also want to mention one announcement that we forgot to list was that on Saturday, May 5th, that's a week from yesterday, is the annual Anvil Banquet. And so uh, if you want to go but don't have a ticket yet, James Cop still has some tickets left. Um, and it's a great time to get together and hear about the work of Anvil and to uh, also get ready for the summer upcoming and also to support the work financially. So talk to James if you're interested in going. It's a great time. And uh, I, I know we're praying for James as well as James takes such a leadership uh, uh, role in, in bringing the banquet together. So, so how to argue Christianly in church. So we're going to talk about this and then maybe we'll have an argument. How about that? Um, not entirely, but not entirely untrue either, that if, if I'm praying through a point of the sermon today, it's that I hope to upset you enough that you can identify within yourself that point where you say, well, I just can't go there. And, and then ask you, okay, what do you do now? So please, when I get there, I'm warning you now, understand that, and I hope to get there with you, um, Maybe I won't upset you at all, and then I will have failed. Um, but when we get there, try to remember this warning that, oh, right, he told me this was coming. How to argue in church, what we're doing and why can change the slide. I don't even have a clicker anymore. Well, I get one next week that works. Where we've been, you might have to click a couple times to get to the next list. Where we've been, we have looked at an introduction to this little series we're doing. Why would we talk about arguing? And the answer is because we want to be better witnesses to the love of Jesus Christ. And hearing Ken up here speaking, 
through the history, some of the history of the Anglican Church, uh, tells you that it's another one of those reminders, again, be careful about longing for the good old days. Um, when, when things were just so much better. I always say to people, you, you, before you, when you say that, you need to tell me exactly what good old days do you mean. And certainly the time that Ken described was not a time of um, kind of harmony. So why would we talk about arguing and how to argue Christianly? Because we want to say, we need to get better at this because this should be a mark of Christian faith that we argue differently than non-Christians or than people who don't recognize salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ because there's it's different when we say what's at stake we trust in God sovereign over all and so our arguments ought to be different secondly we looked and this was a hard sermon but we looked at the question isn't God the worst in other words as you look at scripture particularly some old testament stories doesn't it seem like God is the most violent of all we talked about Saul and the Amalekites and we mentioned that in Christian understanding very important point, and we'll be there today as well, is that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the one true word. And so if you're wrestling with something in Scripture that seems very, very much unchristlike, you use the filter of Jesus Christ to do that wrestling and that interpretation. You don't take that other story of death and killing and murder and mayhem and say, well, sometimes God is like this. God is always like Jesus Christ. That's Christian teaching. Thirdly, last week we got a little more personal and looked at family trouble, arguing in families, and said that every family has conflict, and how we act, and how we long for reconciliation, and how we live in in hope should be different for families where people within that family are Christian. I use that term like that rather than say Christian family, because I don't know what the term Christian family really means. I mean, I could, I'm not dumb. I know what you could say back to me. But it's the reminder again that even in our scriptures, there's no really together family. Everybody has conflict. But how you handle that, what you do in the midst of that, you see some of your angst as a parent often like those who are parents, is, oh, no, what about this problem in my family? And it shouldn't be like this because things should be good, particularly because I trust in Jesus Christ, right? Why is it like this? And when you realize, no, everybody has that, all of a sudden you realize that what you should be doing is how do I live Christianly in the midst of this conflict, not wishing, well, you might wish, but understanding that it can't just go away. So today we talk about how to argue Christianly in church. Churches have had quite a few arguments. That seems like a redundant little sentence to mention after hearing from Ken. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. You could make a lovely little video of that song with some of the church fights we've talked about. I'll tell you right away that what I'm asking, so I'm in this with you, what I'm asking this morning is how many of these fights have had anything to do with Jesus Christ? I don't think we've done a very good job of asking that through the years. Go to the next slide so I know what it is. Um, Yeah, go to the next one. But let me tell you, before we get to the letter to the Corinthians, about one of my uh, favorite arguments that I've read about in church history. This is is in contemporary history, not that long ago, at a church near Boston. And this is in Charles Colson's book, The Body. 
And he talks about a church where there was a literal church fight. I'm not hoping this happens, by the way. And it's terrible, and it's horrible, and it's the worst thing ever. But for people who have kind of a dark sense of humor like me, it's something awesome about it. Because it actually happened. This church sounds like a Baptist church to me, but that's my bias. I can't remember what it was. They had, I'm going to say it was Baptist. I'm pretty confident it was. They had a search committee, and they wanted to hire a new minister. So they hired this new minister. His name was Don Waite, W-A-I-T-E. And Don Waite came into this new church for him. He's the new pastor for them. And he did this incredible thing at the beginning. He said, I'm going to visit every member of this church, probably bigger church than this. I don't think that much bigger. And he's going to visit all the members. But then he did this other thing. When he visited the members, I, I don't think I've ever done this. You can condemn me or tell me if I have. He said, it's interesting talking to you, whoever, whoever he's with. Can you tell me anything more about the other members of the church? Because I just really like to get to know people. <laughs> he's a liar. <laughs> so he kept notes, apparently, gained all kinds of information on the congregation. And early on, I don't know how early on, let's say a year in, there's kind of some dissatisfaction fomenting and maybe people don't like him as much. Whenever a new pastor comes in, the large majority of the things are going to be wonderful from now on because that person does things for us. And then a little while later, I'm not sure if Don's the guy. And so this is kind of happening. And there's a board meeting one night, a council's meeting, and somebody on the council says, I think just before the meeting says, I have a problem with this agenda. I think we should take this item off or move this thing. And the minister, Pastor Waite, pulls this person aside and says, this guy's name is Frank Fowler. He says, Frank, you know, I'm really troubled that you would suggest such a thing, particularly, particularly with what I know about what's happened in your marriage. <laughs> it's like the worst thing, right? So then it just starts to form into camps. There's two camps. One camp supporting the pastor, one camp not. The church um, organist is married to the minister. You get all these kinds of things that are happening. And then one Sunday, there's communion. There's a table here. and leans into the mic. The pastor's sitting back here in a Baptist church. They always sit on the stage, right? And, or often. And he leans into the mic and he says, there's going to be an emergency congregational meeting tonight at my house. The, the pastor's wife starts belting out a song. Right? It was, have thine own way, Lord. Not kidding. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. And then another guy comes up I don't know, this, he comes up and he walks straight up to the minister and he just does, you know that really aggressive man type of thing? He just stands there like this. So Pastor Waite stands up and they're face to face. And nothing happens. And the congregation is like, what's going on? And she's trying to belt up. Oh, just before he got up and put his face like that, he unplugged the organ. He turns, I'm always conscious of this here, he turns and there's chords, sound chords, 
and he gets his foot caught in one, and he trips and he falls. But he assumes that the minister has tripped him. So he turns back to the minister, and he punches, them, punches him in the face. Hard. Congregation, everybody please stand. They stand. And literally, the communion table now, there's a fight. Somebody throws a hymn book towards the pastor's wife, and it lands in the baptismal tank. (laughs) It went to court. I don't have any more to the story other than to tell you that that happened. This text... This is a letter written to the Christians at Corinth, Corinthians. And those who know anything about that culture and about Greece know that this is multicultural, multi-faith, and has come out, I mean, multi-faith to a degree, but has come out of a multi-God understanding of the world, right? Greek gods, lightning throwers, and gods who fight. And when the gods are fighting with one another, you guys pay, right? And you've got to appease these gods. That's the context into which this letter is written. But a new church has formed. There are people becoming Christians. But it's all within this mix. And some people have this view and other people have this view. It's a culture of great intellect, Socrates and Plato, in introducing things like we wouldn't be here without this culture, nation states and laws, individual rights. There's talk of this in, in that philosophy of the difference between the spiritual and the physical. So the spiritual, if I say to you right now, get really spiritual, what are you going to do? You're going to go like, um, think about, and you kind of try to remove yourself from the physical stuff that's going on, right? Now I'm not physical, I'm spiritual. And in this culture, there was a strain of thought that said the, the spiritual is super high and the physical is just garbage. And so all kinds of things were happening in the church from these ideas. How do you make sense of Jesus Christ if you think that Jesus Christ is fully divine but fully human? What part do you think they liked? The fully divine part. The fully human part became really problematic. You have strange things in this letter later on talking about you shouldn't have these sexual practices within your church because it became so, in our thoughts, degraded but the idea was, if the physical is, is worth nothing, then we can do whatever we want with our bodies. This is the culture into which this letter is written and into this new church. Also within the church, there's an elevation of charismatic gifts. Why do you think charismatic? So those are like the ones that some people think are all freaky, you know? Like certain kinds of prayer, praying in tongues or speaking in tongues, prophecy, these kind of... Why would they think those gifts are up here? Because they're more spiritual, right? Hospitality, being kind to someone, well, that, I mean, it's nice, but it's not God nice. And that's the context into which this letter is written. That's why Paul can say later on in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, what does he mean? But have not love. And he says, there are no gifts that are bigger than any other gift. There is no gift that is higher. In fact, if you want to know the greatest three, I'll tell you the greatest three. You know them. Faith, hope, and love. And actually, there's one that's greatest. Love. 
That's the letter he's writing to these group of people, to this group of people. He starts with this greeting. We've read chapter 3, but you can take a look at chapter 1 as well. Chapter 1, verses 10 and on, where he talks about these divisions and brings up some of the same names that Norma read for us. He starts with a greeting and says, into that, remember this is the church, they're dealing with all these struggles, and he says, the first thing I want you to know is that I thank God for you. Isn't that a great start? I thank God for you because Jesus Christ is working in your life. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. You're growing in Christ-likeness. You have been enriched, and he names two ways. You've been enriched in speech and in knowledge. And you have been given all the gifts that you need. And God is faithful. But then he turns to the topic at hand and says, but there are divisions in the church. He says this, not that he's pastor weight, but he says, Chloe has told me that there's quarreling among you. I like, there's two things that in my way of reading scripture I kind of find funny. One is the, Chloe told me that you're fighting, which is just interesting, little tattletale-ish type stuff. But anyway, Chloe told me that you're fighting, and then later on in that same section, Paul says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, because you're fighting with each other. And then he says, actually, I only baptized so-and-so. I think I might have baptized someone else, but I can't remember who I baptized. And as a pastor, you're like, thanks be to God. But anyway... He says, there's quarreling among you. Some say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Peter. Others say, I follow Christ. Paul skillfully puts himself in to this argument, not as a participant, but saying, some say Apollos, some say me. So he's not saying, you should all follow me, forget about Apollos. He's saying, the problem are these divisions themselves. So if you look at why they would follow each person, I can't see what's up there. Yeah. They're going to follow Paul for, they're going to be attracted to Paul's way of teaching about Jesus Christ for some particular reasons. Paul breaks down a ton of barriers. So this culture, both in, in Greece and in the rest of that Roman world at the time, was divided highly into cultures, male, female, powerful, non-powerful, all these kinds of things. Paul writes gospels, or Paul writes letters about gospels, about Jesus Christ, that break down these divisions. So certain people would be very attracted to that, right? If you were a slave, and Paul's saying there's neither slave nor free, I think I'll become a follower of Paul, right? And in Galatians 3, 28, he says that exact thing. He says, in Jesus Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. In other words, these human distinctions that are so important to you are not important in Christ. So that's why some would follow Paul. Why would people follow Apollos? Apollos is mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. We're told that he was a learned man with thorough knowledge. So he's professorial, maybe. Maybe he went to Regent College or something like that. If he was going to be part of a Bible study, it would be BSF. I mean, you'd learn that word. And so some people are going to follow Apollos. Because if I go to a Bible study, I like to study the Bible. I don't want to hear about everybody's life for the two hours. Right? So some follow Apollos. Some follow Peter. Who's Peter? Well, we know Peter from the Gospels. Peter has this close connection to Jesus Christ. Out of these people, the one who knew Jesus Christ. But Peter also has a close connection to Judaism, to Jewish faith. And he's very careful, if you read Acts and Peter's story, about letting go of that tradition. So Peter's going to talk about food that's been sacrificed to idols. Peter's going to talk about religious customs, how to live in this world. Peter is going to appeal to those who are conservative. You know, we need to keep things the way they are. The problem is things are getting terrible. 
They were still doing it then, doing it now. And so the conservative elements would maybe have been attracted to Peter. You have this other group that says, I follow Christ. This is potentially arrogant and at least interesting. Because So there's three groups of people. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And then somebody comes in the mix, and don't you always love this person? I don't know of all you guys, but I just follow Jesus. So a couple things are happening there. One is that these are potentially, in this book, the charismatic people that Paul's talking about and saying, it's, it's great that you're around, but your gifts aren't more important than anybody else's. But because they had these powerful experiences, they would walk into a, a discussion like that and say, all I know is that I follow him. And there would be this kind of spiritual talk. I'm a true believer. I have this direct connection to Jesus Christ. Apollos, he's just a smarty pants. He reads lots of books and likes to talk about Jesus. But I just know Jesus. Peter, he's all about rules. But me, I'm all about freedom and victory. So that's one potential when when Paul is outlining some say I follow Christ. And the second is that it's a reminder for all of us, whatever camp we're in, to say, to be careful that we at times confuse our preferences in faith with Jesus Christ himself. In other words, because I am drawn to this more charismatic expression, or because I'm drawn to this more studious expression, right? Or because I'm drawn to this, therefore, that's Jesus. Or because, or you, can, you, you, you confuse your desire for conservatism and, you know, keeping your eyes on God with, well, that's what Christian faith equals. So some say, I follow Jesus, a certain way of praying, or it might be worship music you like, whatever it is, or an understanding of the world. Now, Paul, in chapter 1 here, is going to ask a couple of questions. We can go to the next slide. Go right in. Paul's going to ask a couple of questions. He sets this out. He said, obviously he's not impressed with this. He doesn't think it's good for the witness of the church. And then he says, I have a couple questions for you. I always think this is like a parent, like a really smart and loving parent who basically finds something out, like, you know, and then they say, let me ask you a couple things. And you're like, oh, no. Here it comes. This is Paul being pretty strong. First question I have, and we would ask that the Holy Spirit would just bring this question into this room, is Christ divided? The answer is no, but the evidence is yes. The evidence to our world is that Christ is divided. And I have not yet seen in my lifetime expressions otherwise. Because when the thing comes up in a few minutes, whatever it might be that you say, I can't go there, that's the point at which you, all of a sudden, some of your angst is because you think, oh, that might be worthy of division. What if Todd thinks this? And Paul just says, is Christ divided? And obviously in his mind the answer is no. All of these differences exist within following Jesus Christ. I had this in, in my own life last year, talking with somebody in our congregation who we had different views on something. These can be tough conversations. And some of it was around some of these similar things. And I left just feeling like, 
Lord God, what do we do when we feel strained like this? When we both believe in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And I went for a bike ride because that's what I do. And this was around conversations of spiritual expression, charismatic expression. And I'm going for a bike ride and I got stopped. I was going to Horseshoe Bay. I got stopped on the highway. There was road construction, which I hate. When you're riding your bike, you don't want to stop. And I got stopped and I had to wait there. And there's these flag people. And, and there's this guy in an orange vest and he's holding some big metal thing that he knows what it is. And I'm glad people know what those things are. I have no idea. He's going to put it in the ground somewhere, I guess. And I feel the Holy Spirit speak to me. And I feel the Holy Spirit saying, Todd, look at that guy. The way you talk about me, maybe a little bit more intellectual ideas, books, thoughts, it's not going to work for that guy. He needs prophecy. And the burden I felt was relieved. We're in this together. There's much more to that story that I could tell you someday. Is Christ divided? No. And it's probably true that the person I was speaking with longed that I would think more like them. But the key is that we don't have to. Christ is not divided. We're in this together. That's the first question. The second one, and it gets even harsher, is was Paul crucified for you? This is a nice, convenient one for us because we can put in our own thing. Paul, again, brilliant writer, thinker, intellect, theologian, and also a pastor in that he puts his own name in first. Was Paul crucified for you? Did Apollos die for your sins? Right? So put whatever you want in there. I've used the joke. I love the place. We just advertised the banquet. But this was, was Daybreak Point Bible Camp crucified for you? Did you give your life to that? Was the Brethren Church crucified for you? Was your view of spiritual gifts crucified for you? I would hear, was Karl Barth crucified for you? The answer is no. Or Alpha, or the Breaking of Bread service, or Regent, or Holy Spirit worship. Hillsongs wasn't crucified for you. Moral upstanding was not crucified for you. The call is centrality in Jesus Christ. When I, in just a moment, go through this list, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to bring you to a picture that I had when we were singing, Hallelujah, what a Savior, I owe everything to Him. It was standing beside someone who sees some really important issue to you very differently than you do, and you're both singing, Hallelujah, what a Savior, I owe everything to Him. Because many of us in churches like this, we know what every other person needs. I could go through the list and I could name names, but I won't do it. Those who've been around for a number of years have this sense at times of, I know what we need. We need this. If we could just get, and sometimes it's if we could just get back to, or some then come in, in, into our midst, we, we're in communion with people. If, if we just had this, and it is some other expression of faith, powerful expression of faith, if only they did this, or knowledge, 
Or if only we had more people who were committed and signed up to actually do something. That's true. You should sign up to do more. But anyway. And I could throw myself in the mix. If only people would think. Nobody wants to think anymore. Didn't really understand that. (laughs) Please. We all know what everybody else needs to some degree. Not all of you are like that. But somehow, to take that thing we care most about, our way of following Jesus Christ, and humble ourselves, and then ask ourselves this. Did you know? We can change the slide. Did you know that there are Christians who vote conservative? I'm not kidding. There are Christians who vote NDP. There are even Christians who vote Green. They vote for the Green Party out of their Christian convictions. Did you know that there are Christians who swear? I did. I know some of them. And we, they, sorry, see words in Scripture that talk about no cursing and see that that talks about language where one person cuts another person down. I can cut you down without ever swearing. Did you know that there are Christians who think that every Christian should speak in tongues? I'm serious. Did you know that there are Christians who think speaking in tongues is nuts? Did you know that there are Christians who believe that if a woman enters a worship service, she has to put something on her head to cover up her head because that's a sign of authority? And the woman is under authority. And did you know that there are Christians who think that woman, or any woman, would never be allowed to come up here and speak from here? For one reason. She's a woman. That might be an older list. This church, we won't use a church fight in history, and I don't know much about it, I'm ignorant of it, but just before I started coming here, people used to tell me this, there was an argument in this church about head coverings for women. Did you know that there are Christians who support same-sex relationships? They know scripture, many of these people. Did you know that there are Christians who say no war ever? No war. We're pacifists. The Bible says do not kill. There are Christians who will stake their faith on that. Or it's the, one of the most important tenets in their faith. Do not kill. And there are Christians who think, well, no, you can kill. You're allowed to kill killers. Did you know that there are Christians who are environmentalists? Did you know that there are Christians who love praise songs? They see a hymn and they're like, oh, here's an old hymn. I want a praise song. And there are Christians who see a praise song and go, not again. How many times are we going to repeat that line? Christians who come alive at old hymns. I'm not saying that these things don't matter. Any of them. What I'm saying is, every one of these things I named, And if any particular one of them, I would imagine the same-sex relationship one is most troubling to some here. 
But if any particular one of these made you think, well, no, that's the one. I Hear this. I never once mentioned Jesus Christ. Is Christ divided? But you'll divide over that thing. And as long as we're like that, we have a very, very limited witness in this world. We are not a group of people in the church united by a common interest, political philosophy, or even some of the things we think about, very important things, sexuality, gender, whatever. We are not a group of people united by a common interest. We are people in Christian faith in mystical union with Jesus Christ. That's where our life comes from. Jesus Christ, you can change the slide, Jesus Christ is the one word of God. Jesus is the one word of God. This book is the word about the word. One more. He's the one word of God. And Jesus Christ, it is true, faces opposition in this world. But that place where Jesus Christ has supremely faced opposition historically is from within the church, the bride of Christ. And one of the key points of this opposition has been our division. And this is what Paul speaks to. So right away, if you're thinking, I wonder what Todd thinks about this, that could be dangerous. I've not seen it yet. I've not seen the church where people who disagree super strongly about really important issues worship together because they both recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. But I've seen lots and lots of division. We declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. The work of God is Jesus. You can't say the work of God is morals in some way, but that's a tiny, pathetic understanding of faith. The work of God is whatever else matters to you, power. The work of God is Jesus. The word of God is Jesus. Salvation is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only word which all human words, even the best, can only directly or indirectly attest. But they cannot repeat or replace or rival Jesus Christ the Word. Their goodness is to be measured by whether or not they are witness of this one word. That Jesus Christ is the one word of God means that he is He is that total and complete declaration of God concerning himself. Jesus Christ is the light of life. Now go back to your thing, your preference, your certainty about what God would want you to do in the world. And by God's grace, I pray you let it go. And humble yourself at the foot of the cross. And realize where even your desire to follow Jesus Christ, at times you've thought of that in a way that has broken communion. 
come, Holy Spirit. Let me pray. So, Father God, we ask that you would guide us through this. If a place like Sutherland, so in your way of things, is to be a place where there are very different ways of seeing things, even matters of great importance, but that is all under your sovereignty, under your lordship. Hallelujah. Now picture it. That person who has that totally different view than you on whatever issue you have in mind, and you are standing beside them and singing, Hallelujah. What a Savior. I owe everything to him. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Instruct us in this and change us, your church, we ask, in your name. Amen.